Andrew Womack Ministries presents part three of the Sharper Than a Two-Edged Sword series, a three-part album. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Today is the beginning of my third week teaching through this book that I've entitled Sharper Than a Two-Edged Sword. This is actually 16 of my books put into one book. Each chapter just summarizes an entire teaching that I have. And we found that this is really popular with a lot of people. They want to kind of get an overview of some of the major things that the Lord has given me to share. And so they get this, they read through, they get a brief summary of an entire teaching and then whichever one that the uh, Holy Spirit just quickens to them, they'll go back and get that teaching and study it in depth. We also have this teaching in a Spanish book right here. And then we have these study guides. And these study guides have really been popular for people taking this and doing Bible studies. And then, you know, as they go through these 16 different topics, whichever one seems to hit a nerve with the group that they're discipling, they'll go back and get the study guide on that one and then study it in depth. So anyway, I think that this has been a really good series. And today what I want to talk about is about harnessing your emotions. Let me turn over to the book of James and start with this verse in James chapter 1, verse 14. Or let me back up to verse 13. It says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now, there's a lot in these verses, and I could spend much more time on this. But in a nutshell, this is just saying that you are tempted through your own lust. That sin is conceived in your lust. The word lust, typically the way that we use it today, is always referring to some sexual, evil sexual desire. But the word lust, it just literally means a strong, overpowering emotion. For instance, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, it says that the spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh lusts against the spirit. Now, this is talking about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit doesn't have some evil sexual desire. It's just talking about a strong, overpowering desire. The Holy Spirit is jealous and it lusts. Uh, it wants us with a strong desire to be committed and devoted to God. And the Holy Spirit's always convicting us. So I say all of this to say that when it says every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust, this isn't talking about some evil sexual desire. It's just talking about your desires, your emotions. Matter of fact, I believe the NIV and many other translations translate this desire in this verse. So here's my point, that most people view emotions as being a byproduct of their circumstances. They don't get up in the morning and say, today I'm going to be depressed. They don't plan on it, but they feel no ability to control their emotions. And if certain things happen, they would think that something is wrong with them, that they're in denial if they don't have negative emotions. And yet that's not what this is saying. This is saying your emotions aren't just the byproduct. It's not like the caboose on the train. Your emotions are the driving force. And it says here that you conceive sin in your emotions. If you never emotionally connect with some evil thing, you will never physically do it. Now that's a huge statement right there. 
You know, this is comparable to in the physical realm. If a woman doesn't want to have children, instead of using abortion as a method of birth control and just continuing to have sexual relationships, the best way not to have children is not to have that physical relationship. And yet there's a lot of people that they go around, they just sleep around with whoever, and then they use abortion or something like that. And most Christians would say, well, that is totally wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. But in a real sense, this is what many Christians do. We are plugged into this world way too much. We see and hear way too much ungodliness promoted. As I said, they use sex to sell toothpaste, to sell cars, to sell nearly anything that has nothing to do with any of that. But they use it to get your attention. You see these images. It creates desires. And every time you have an evil desire, something was conceived. And unless there is an abortion or a miscarriage along the way, you are going to act that thing out. That's amazing. This is so simple. You know, I, there was a man who was very public. He was a Christian. He, he and his wife held some marriage seminars. And uh, anyway, a very outspoken Christian. I have no doubt whatsoever that he was born again and that he was loving God. And he had somebody who was critical of his stance that they literally paid a prostitute to entice him. He came into his room and just enticed this guy and he had sexual relationships with her and they took pictures of it and of course exposed him and hurt his marriage, hurt his ministry and it was just terrible. And some people say, how could he do that? Well, I don't know him well enough to say all of these things, but based on these scriptures, he could not. I know some of you are going to disagree with this, but I, I believe this with all of my heart, that you cannot go anywhere in your physical body that you hadn't already been in your mind and in your emotions. I've used this example before. It's like tunneling underground. You can't just walk through the dirt and through the rocks and stuff like that. You have to go dig out a place, empty that space out, make a void space before you can walk into it and make a tunnel. Likewise, you can't go anywhere in your physical body that you haven't already been in your mind and in your emotions. I believe that that's exactly what this is saying, that sin has to be conceived in your desire, in your lust, in your emotions. Therefore, control your emotions. Don't ever let your emotions go anywhere that you don't want to go. And guess what? You will never go there. Jesus said to His disciples the very night before His crucifixion, in John chapter 14, verse 1, He said, Let not your heart be troubled. Now, that was a command. It didn't say, try to keep your emotions in line. I pray that you can do this. You know, as much as you can do this. No, it says, you let not your heart be troubled. The very way that he stated that shows that we have authority over our emotions. We can control our emotions or he would have been unjust to command us to do something that cannot be done. He said, you control your emotions. David, in Psalms chapter 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. All of these things are commands, and it would be unjust on God's part to command us to do something that we can't do. And yet the average person will believe that you cannot control your emotions. 
You would like to do this. When you get up in the morning, you don't want to be depressed. You don't want to end the day, you know, despondent and suicidal. But it just depends on what happens during the day. If some, something really, really bad happened, if the doctor tells you you're going to die, most Christians would feel absolutely like they are in denial if they don't just indulge all of these emotions and let their mind go and think about, you know, the doctor says, I'm going to die. I wonder what my funeral is going to be like. Plan your eulogy. Do all of these things. And then wonder why it is that you're depressed. It's because you've embraced those thoughts. You let your heart be troubled. You could have let not your heart be troubled. And I know some of you are thinking that's unreasonable. No, it is reasonable. You can do it. You can control yourself. You can choose what you want to set your attention upon. And you know, in this series that I teach on harnessing your emotions, if you go into the, the full teaching on it, I spend two uh, weeks of teaching on television, two hours of teaching on CDs, talking about Christian and philosophy or psychology because psychology has made inroads into our society, even into the Christian society, to where we have a lot of values that have been placed by psychology. And psychology is totally an ungodly system. Now, understand what I'm saying. I believe that there are Christian psychologists. I believe that there are Christians in that field. And they take and they modify and use things. And I know some of them. Some of them are my personal friends. I am not against those individuals. But I'm saying psychology, as Freud established and as it has evolved over the years, is an ungodly concept. It does not deal with things from the spirit realm. It deals with things from only a humanistic standpoint. It makes people like an evolved animal, that we are no different than a wolf or a dog or a horse, and we just respond to stimuli. But I'm telling you that the Bible teaches that we were created in the image of God. And the Bible says that the spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity. We are not like people who don't have God in their life. We are not like people that have no hope except in this physical life. Man, if worse comes to worse, if everything in your life is so bad that it looks like you are going to die, did you know that a Christian can still be rejoicing? Because when we die, that is not the end. That is just the beginning of something that is going to be far greater than this life. Matter of fact, these friends that I was talking about, I told you that their lives are physically threatened. They've had people shoot at them right at their feet and they are threatening now to kill them and do some things. And you know what? Part of the way that they dealt with this is to say that, you know what? The worst thing that could happen is they kill us and we go to be with the Lord. And because, see, they take into account not just this physical world. They recognize they are a spiritual being. They've been changed. And when we die and this physical body lays down, that is not the end of us. There is still an eternity to go. And for those who have made a commitment to the Lord and have put, put their faith in Him, man, heaven is going to be a blast. And because of that, they aren't fearful of death the way that other people are. Man, I pray that you get this. And yet, see, psychology is not going to be ministering the Word of God to you. Matter of fact, psychology will try and take the Word of God away from you. And some of you say, never. You know, I've gone to visit people in mental hospitals and it, is, it takes a congressional act to get a minister to go in and see somebody in a mental hospital because 
they see religion as one of the causes of all of these problems. They are setting standards here and this person didn't live up to it. And instead of applying forgiveness and grace and telling them about the mercy of God, they just say, oh, all of those standards are wrong. Don't believe what the Bible says. It's okay for you to live like an animal, etc., etc." And they do not want people coming in and establishing spiritual truths. They are dealing with everything from only a physical, natural, humanistic standpoint. And Christianity and psychology are basically opposed to each other. Now, you may disagree with that, but nonetheless, I believe that this is one of the reasons that people's emotions are so messed up today is because instead of approaching it from God's standpoint where it says, control your emotions, don't let your heart be troubled, rejoice in the Lord always, think on things that are honest and pure and lovely and just and of good report, and if there's virtue and praise, think on these things. Now, instead of approaching it from the biblical standpoint, we are dealing with everything only from a humanistic standpoint. Most people do not understand the importance of their emotions, so they just let their emotions run wild. And I tell you, that is a recipe for disaster. You can look at Paul. Paul was thrown into prison in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. And yet Paul and Silas, with their backs beaten, their feet and their hands in the stocks in the lowest part of the dungeon with no light in there. I'm sure there was rats. I'm sure it was infested with stuff. It was a bad situation and yet Paul and Silas began to sing and give praise to God. Somebody says, I can't imagine that. Well, that's the reason it doesn't work for you is because, see, you just have believed that you are only human, that you don't have any ability to rise above what is happening to you in the uh, natural realm. But I'm telling you, you can praise God. You can choose to keep your mind stayed on God. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is even better. And if you had that mindset, if you were thinking about heaven, if you were thinking about the worst thing that could happen to me is that they kill me and I go to be with Jesus and I'm going to be in eternity. I'm going to live in a mansion. There'll be no more sorrow, no more pain. God's going to wipe all tears away from my eyes. It's going to be so glorious that the Bible says that we will not even remember the former things because they are all passed away. Heaven is going to be awesome. And if you had the mindset, if you were thinking on things the way Paul thought on things, then when somebody tells you you're going to die, it would be all you could do to keep from just reaching up and kissing them and saying, oh, thank you. This, is, this could be awesome. And it says in Isaiah 26, 3, that the Lord will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon him because he trusted him. It didn't say he'd keep you in perfect peace as long as there was no problems and as long as there was no turmoil and as long as everything's good in your life, then you can have perfect peace. It just makes a promise that you keep your mind stayed upon the Lord and he will keep you in perfect peace. If you're not in perfect peace, it is not your problems that's the problem. It's the way you think about your problems. It's where your mind has gone. You have let those problems paint a picture and your mind has already gone there and hollowed out that space. And that's the reason you enter into defeat and discouragement because in your heart, in your mind, in your emotions, you've already been there. You can't go anywhere in your physical body that you haven't already been in your mind and in your emotions. Therefore, control your thoughts, which will control your emotions. And praise God, all you will have are the positive things that you've thought of and uh, conceived in your emotions.
Man, that's powerful. So what I want to talk about today is a teaching that I have entitled the, uh, Discover the Keys to Staying Full of God. And uh, let me just introduce this by saying that I met a woman one time who was at my meeting. She had been there for four days. She came up and she was crying and saying she had a revelation of God's love like she had never seen before. She said she was just overwhelmed, overcome with God's love for her, which was a great testimony. But then at the end, she says, I know it won't last. I know that maybe next week, next month, I'll be right back to where I was. But man, I'm enjoying it now. And when she said that, it just grieved me that she said it. And she was expecting this to just kind of like leak out and that she wouldn't be able to maintain it. And it really bothered me that she was expecting this. But then as I thought about it, I said, you know, that is the way that a lot of people are. I mean, I minister to many people, tens of thousands of people. In over 47 years of ministry, man, I have ministered to a lot, a lot of people. And it is true that I will see people that just get fired up and turned on to the Lord, but most people can't maintain that intensity. They can't keep the momentum. They are up and down like a yo-yo and they go through periods of dryness where everything is bad. And many people have just accepted this as the way that the Christian life is supposed to be. But I don't believe that it is. There ought to be a consistency in the Christian life. You know, Paul again said, I will, or excuse me, David, I will bless the Lord at all times. David went through terrible things and yet he said, I'm going to bless the Lord at all times. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. Jesus said that you are going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. You can rejoice. You can be praising God. You can have consistency in your life, regardless of what's going on outside, on the inside you can have the peace and the joy of the Lord. I believe that. I experience it. I've got things coming against me the same as anybody has coming against them, and yet it doesn't depress me because I've discovered how to stay full of God. It is not up to God whether you are full of God and whether you have joy and peace. It's up to you. Now, it's God's power, but God's power is always on. Can you imagine... Jesus sitting on the throne wringing his hands saying, oh man, things are really going bad. I don't know if I can pull it off. I need help. I mean, who does God pray to for help? You know, I, I don't believe that God is bothered or uh, affected by anything. And the scripture says in Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then over in uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, it says, Arm yourselves likewise with this same mind talking about Jesus. If you can't see Jesus bothered and worried about things, well, then why are you when you have access to the mind of Christ? God is always full of joy and peace. God is not upset and He lives on the inside of you. And there are things you can do that just release this. It's not me turning God on and off. God is always on. It's me turning me on and off. I can turn off my negative emotions. I can turn on good and uh, positive emotions. It's my choice. And here's a verse that I use to teach this. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, it says, Because that when they knew God... They glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. 
You know, I'm taking this out of context, but if I had time to put it into context, he's talking about the power of the gospel. You just tell people about the good news, how much God loves them. You do not have to just put them under this tremendous guilt and condemnation because in verses 18 through 20, it says there is already an intuitive knowledge of ungodliness on the inside of every person. It says so that they are without excuse. Now you will hear people profess that and say that they have no conviction. They don't believe there's a God. There's an atheist. You'll have people say all kinds of things, but it's just a mind game. It's not the truth. And I know some of you, well, who are you to say that they're wrong? Because the Bible says that they're wrong. It says God has revealed himself from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. They have this internal witness on the inside. They know of the eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. On a heart level, everybody knows that there is one God and they are not him. And they know that they have sinned. They know that they have done things wrong. And they know that there is a day coming when they're going to stand before God. And on a heart level, everybody knows these things. But in verse 21, that verse I just read, it describes that you can harden yourself towards this. You can deny this inner conviction of the Holy Spirit. And uh, over in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, it says you can actually sear your conscience with a hot iron. You can get it to where it's non-functional, to where you are so hardened that you're no longer even convicted over sin. But nobody started that way. This has to be something that you work towards. And Romans 1, 21 describes progressive steps that a person has to take away from God in order to reach that place where their heart is hardened and blinded towards God. So if you find out what these progressive steps are, there's four of them listed in Romans 1.21. All you've got to do is reverse this process. And instead of number one, it says they didn't glorify God. You've got to do the opposite. You've got to start glorifying God. And the word glorify, again, in my teaching where I go into this in great depth, I can show you this and prove all, all of this to you. But the word glorify means to magnify, to focus your attention upon, to uh, esteem, to prize. In other words, everything that happens in your life, you place a value on this. You either glorify the negative or you glorify the positive. And many people think, well, I do not do that. Yes, you do. Everything that comes your way, you place a value on it. You know, I've had people come to me after I've taught or something and they go to railing on me and criticizing me and things. And I've had, I've literally stopped some people before. And I said, who died and made you God? And they just look at me like, what are you saying? And I said, you aren't God. I said, God loves me. God's pleased with me and He knows that I'm not perfect. And yet if God Almighty loves and accepts me and is pleased with me, who are you? What is your opinion? And people will usually take a feel, well, you won't respect me. You aren't honoring me. Another way of saying it is you aren't glorifying me. You don't really value me the way you should. It's not that I don't value other people. It's just that I value God so much more that in a comparative sense, relative to God, you are nothing. Amen. 
And I know that that is so offensive to people because you place so much value on yourself and on other people and you have to have other people's acceptance. And that's the very reason that you enter into a snare. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 29 that the fear of man brings a snare and you are snared. You're constantly being controlled and manipulated to say and do things that you wouldn't normally do because you're afraid of a person's rejection or criticism or whatever. I guarantee you people are going to criticize you, but when you are putting your focus on God, when you are glorifying God and saying, God, your acceptance is more important to me than anybody else. I don't care if everybody else forsakes me. If, if you love me, if I'm doing what you've told me to do, you can find so much acceptance and so much joy in God that it just doesn't matter. And all of this stuff, it's just like water off a duck's back. You will be in a bubble. You will be in a, in a presence with God to where nobody else, nothing else matters. Isaiah 26, 3 says, The Lord will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon him because he trusts in him. But anytime I recognize that I'm beginning to deviate and that I'm beginning to be bothered by people's acceptance or rejection or whatever, I just go back into the Word and I put my attention back on God and I glorify God. I begin to magnify God. And I say, Father, this is what you've told me to do. And even though people don't understand and they're criticizing me, thank you. And I just focus on His acceptance. And His acceptance is so awesome. I'm accepted in the Beloved is what it says in Ephesians 1, 6 and so many other scriptures. I'm accepted. That word accepted that was used in Ephesians 1, 6, it's only used twice in the New Testament. And the other time was in Luke chapter 1 when the angel appeared unto Mary and said, Hail thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. That highly favored is the exact same Greek word that was translated accepted in Ephesians 1, 6. I am accepted. I am highly favored. Man, God loves me. God has a picture of me in His wallet. He's got an 8 by 10 of me hung in His room. God loves me. God brags about me, not because I do everything right. It's not because I am lovely. It's because God is love. And God is pleased with me. And when I focus on that, and when I glorify God and magnify Him, it's like as He goes up, everything else goes down. It's like a seesaw. If you start glorifying people and you have to have their approval and you've got to, you're codependent upon them and if people are going to reject you, you just are, are messed up. If you do that, well, then you have quit glorifying God. But the moment you start glorifying, focusing on God, everything else becomes relatively insignificant. You can get to where you can walk through the fire and it won't burn you. You can go through a flood and you will not drown. You can do anything when you are in that place where you are glorifying God. The second thing talks about being thankful. You know, there's no way I can cover all of this today. I'm just giving you a brief summary. But being thankful is part of how you glorify God. If you are focused on your problems instead of focused on what God has already done, if you forget that you were purged from your sins, you forget all of the great things that God has done for you, then it leads into depression and it leads into this up and down Christian life. But when you glorify God, which includes being thankful, you magnify God, you make God bigger when you focus on the good things that He's done. Then the next thing in this verse, it talks about that they became vain in their imaginations. You know, when I taught on this recently, 
on our television program, I spent over a week talking about imagination because your imagination is your ability to picture something that you can't see with your physical eyes. But you can imagine it. You can remember things like the house that you live in, even though you don't probably know how many windows you have in your house, you could in your imagination, you could count them because you can picture it, you can see it. That's your imagination and it says that your imagination has to be a positive imagination. You have to start seeing godly things. As a matter of fact, that verse that I quoted in Isaiah 26, 3, the Lord will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon him because he trusteth in him. The word that was used for mind right there, yet, sir, the Hebrew word was also translated imagination in a number of times. This is talking about not just having individual thoughts, but letting those thoughts paint pictures. In other words, you may know that by his stripes you were healed, but if you ever let those, that scripture paint a picture of you being well, do you see yourself well or do you see yourself sick? When you dream, do you dream with yourself in a wheelchair or with yourself in pain or with yourself unable to go outside because it's allergy season? Or do you dream and see yourself sick or do you see yourself well? You may have individual facts that by his stripes were healed, but have those facts ever changed your imagination? Have you meditated on it? to the point that you see yourself well. If you can't see it on the inside, you can't see it on the outside. And see, this is what it talks about. First of all, you have to glorify God. You have to magnify Him. Thanksgiving, focusing on the good things that God has done instead of the bad things that the devil is doing is an important part of glorifying God. And if you do that, that will lead to you seeing yourself succeeding and winning instead of seeing yourself failing. And once you do that, well, then your heart becomes sensitive to God. But if you aren't glorifying God, if you aren't being thankful, your imagination has no choice but to become vain. It'll still function, but it'll just focus on all of the negative things. And you will see yourself dying. You'll see yourself always being in this situation. You'll never see your marriage being healed. You'll never see your children turning to the Lord. You will never see anything positive. And what that does, that leads to your heart being darkened, dull, hardened towards God, to where even though God loves you and He's trying to reach out to you, you can't hear His voice. You're hardened. You're dull of hearing. Jesus said a number of times, if you have eyes to see and if you have ears to hear, then hear and see. Well, every single person he talked to had physical eyes and physical ears, but he was talking about hearing with your heart. You have to contact God through your heart. And if you aren't glorifying God, if you aren't thankful, if you aren't using your imagination in a positive way, then you become dull and non-perceptive towards God. You can reverse that entire process. Man, this is powerful about how you can stay full of God. It's up to you. It's not up to God. It's up to you whether you will reach out and appropriate all of the things that He's done for you. Today, I'm going to be talking about how that God wants you well. And I have a lot of teaching on this. Plus, we have four different DVDs that have four or five testimonies on each one of them of people that have been miraculously healed. We've had people with multiple sclerosis be healed. We've had people go through car accidents that were miraculously healed. We've had people have strokes and one-third of their brain messed up that were miraculously healed. We've had people raised from the dead. All of these things are documented and we have these videos about them. I tell you, they're faith builders. 
So I've got a lot of teaching on this, but today I'm just going to spend one day trying to summarize the whole thing. And of course, there is a lot to be said, but I just want to get across that God wants you well. In Isaiah chapter 53, this is the great Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, about Jesus. And it's powerful, the things that he said here. It says in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteem him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And it just goes on and on. This is a powerful passage of Scripture. But I wanted to focus on the fourth and the fifth verse, and specifically this statement where it says, By his stripes we were healed. Jesus was beaten right before his crucifixion uh, with 39 stripes. And I mean, this was a cat of nine tails. It was strips of leather that had pieces of glass or bone tied in there so that when they hit the flesh, they would dig in and then they would jerk it out and it would rip open the flesh. He didn't have just little cuts. They were huge gashes. And these stripes, 39 stripes, uh, produced healing for us. Jesus took our sickness and our disease in Him. Now this is just so obvious here. It says, by His stripes we are healed. And yet the church as a whole has rejected healing. The vast majority of the Christian church today will accept forgiveness of sins but not healing of your body. They might believe that it can happen, but they certainly don't believe it's a part of our salvation. But this says that when He died for us, part of His suffering was for us so that we might be healed. Man, that is just obvious. And yet it's amazing. People get around this and they say, well, this isn't talking about physical healing. It's talking about emotional healing or something like that. Let me turn over to a New, passage, New Testament passage of Scripture. This is in Matthew chapter 8. And it says in verse 14, And when Jesus was come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto them. When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. Not some, but all that were sick. And in the next verse, verse 17, Matthew 8, 17 says, That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. This is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, where it says, He bore our sorrows and griefs. In the New Testament, it calls those words infirmities and sicknesses. The Bible is a commentary upon itself. If you will keep studying, the Bible will explain anything that you may struggle to understand. That's the reason that we need to study the entire Word of God. But Matthew 8, 17 is a commentary on Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5, and it's talking about physical healing. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it's talking about Jesus, and it says, "...who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins 
should live under righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. It puts it in the past tense. It's already a done deal. And here's one of the greatest truths that God has ever taught me about healing. That when you have something go wrong in your body, you aren't waiting on God to heal you. God healed you before you were ever born, before you ever got sick, before you ever had the problem. He has already paid for your healings and by His stripes you were healed. 1 Peter 2, 24. And somebody says, well, I'm not because here's my pain. I still have it. Here's my doctor's report proven. But see, all that's doing is checking out your physical body. In the Spirit, you have the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead living on the inside of you. And one of the keys to seeing that healing power manifest and change your physical situation is to quit approaching God as if you are nothing and have nothing and can do nothing. But, oh God, you just stretch forth your hands. See, you are doubting what the Bible says. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 says, By His stripes you are healed. Matthew 8, 17 applies that directly to sickness. 1 Peter 2, 24 says that by His stripes you were healed. It's already done. And when you say, Oh God, I'm sick. I can't do anything. This is incurable. Would you please do something? You are starting from unbelief. Because the Bible says you were healed. It's already done. It's part of the atonement. Jesus would no more want you to be sick than He would want you to sin. If you take the word sozo, S-O-Z-O, that is used for the word salvation 300 and something times in the New Testament, that word means healing just as much as it means forgiveness of sins. The Lord, in the same way that He's already forgiven your sins, He's already healed your body, He's already delivered you, it is a part of your salvation. There was an instance where a woman came and, and asked for a healing and the Lord said that this woman, that healing was the children's bread is the terminology. This is something that God has provided for every one of us. God wants you well. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, it says how that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with power and with the Holy Ghost who went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil. That verse says that healing is good. Today, many Christians will say, that's of the devil. No, the Bible says healing was good. He went about healing all, not some, but all. That means that it's not just a case-by-case, individual basis, whether he likes you or doesn't like you. No, it's a part of what he provided. It's for everyone. And it goes on to say that they were oppressed of the devil, not oppressed of God. Religion today has turned it around to say God is the one that's putting sickness on you to teach you something and to do this. And yet the Bible says Jesus healed all that were oppressed of the devil, not oppressed of God. I'm telling you, healing is important. Healing is something that God has for you. You can see in the 8th chapter of the book of Matthew that there was a man who had leprosy and he came to Jesus and he said, Master, if you will, you can make me clean. Did you know it was appropriate for him to pray that way because he didn't have the New Testament scriptures. He didn't have 1 Peter 2.24 that says, By his stripes you were healed. He didn't understand all of these things, so it was okay for him to come and say, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. But Jesus responded and he says, I will be thou clean. 
You put that together with Romans chapter 2, I believe it's verse 11, where it says, God is no respecter of persons. And you can see that if God healed one person, well, then He wants to heal all. It is a part of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ for your healing. If you aren't being healed, if that healing isn't manifest, it's because you aren't partaking of everything that Jesus provided. But it's not because God hasn't healed you. You've already got this raising from the dead power living on the inside of you. You just aren't partaking of it. And the number one reason that I find that people aren't partaking of healing is because of ignorance. They have been taught that healing is optional, that God could do it, but that you can't claim it. You can't stand on it. It's not part of your inheritance. And this wrong teaching produces unbelief, which stops the power of God from manifesting. You can go to the 17th chapter of the book of Matthew. And there's an instance where a man brought his demon-possessed son. He was having some type of things like seizures. Uh, and it was throwing him into the fire and into the water and he would convulse and do all of this. It was something like what we would call an epileptic seizure. And he brought this man to Jesus' disciples, but Jesus wasn't present with them. He was up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he was literally speaking to Moses and uh, Elijah about his crucifixion that was coming up. And anyway, when he came down, this man had tried to get the disciples of Jesus to cast this demon out and they couldn't do it. And so Jesus responded. Let me just turn over and read some of this because, you know, this is really important. Today, the things that I'm saying about healing being for everyone, that we should be seeing healing, that it's a part of our atonement, you start talking this way, I can guarantee you somebody is saying, well then, why are these people saying? Why doesn't this always happen? And rather than sit there and say, well, it's because we just haven't been taught the truth. We aren't believing the truth. We've got a lot of unbelief in this area, which puts responsibility upon us. Most people will not say things like that. And because of it, they will just sit there and push it off on God. Well, maybe it's not God's will. Maybe God's trying to teach you something. Maybe healing passed away with the apostles. And they come up with all of these things that are unscriptural and don't line up with it. When Jesus saw that his disciples could not heal this boy, how did he respond? The typical, you know, compassionate, uh, modern day preacher would say, oh guys, I'm sorry. It's, it's not your fault. You know, you're only human. You can't do these kind of things. I have to do this. And he, he didn't just sit there and say, it's not your fault. Don't feel bad about it. You're okay. Here's what he said when they couldn't cast this demon out. Verse 17, this is Matthew 17, 17. He answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And so they brought this boy to Jesus and Jesus cast this demon out and he was totally healed. But I wanted to point out that Jesus wasn't pleased with his disciples' inability to minister healing. Do you know if the average person went to the average pastor and said, I've got cancer and I'd like you to pray for me. I want to be healed. The average Christian pastor would say, well, have you been to the doctors? You better go to the doctors. You better go take this treatment. You would better do this. In other words, instead of saying, man, this is what God has commanded us to do. He gave us a command in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, to heal the sick 
cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, and cast out devils. It didn't say pray for the sick. It said heal the sick. Instead of the average pastor saying, man, this is what God has anointed me to do, and I'll be glad to do it, and we're going to see you heal. Instead, the average Christian pastor today would say, well, go to the doctor. Why are you coming to me? And you go to the doctor, and I'll pray that God blesses you through that. But see, this is not what Jesus told us to do. Jesus told us to go heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. And when His disciples couldn't do it, He said, You faithless and perverse generation, how long am I going to be with you? How long am I going to be here? In other words, I'm trying to teach you guys how to do this. I'm about to leave. You need to carry on this ministry. He wasn't pleased with His disciples' inability to meet the needs of people. And I'm telling you, he's not pleased today with his church's inability to see the sick healed, to see the blind eyes open, the deaf ears open, the dead raised. That doesn't please God. Now, God loves us, and God is not condemning us, and he's placed all of our sin upon Jesus, and I'm not saying that he's rejecting us. I believe in the grace and the mercy of God. But it does say in Ephesians chapter 4 that we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And I believe God is grieved that people are having to go to the doctors, to the lawyers, to the bankers, to the psychiatrists to get their needs met because His people are unable to meet their needs. Jesus meant people's needs. He told us that the works that He did, John 14, 12, we will do also and even greater works than these. And yet the average Christian today does not believe in healing. They might pray, you know, a prayer like, God, if it's your will, heal this person, which is no prayer at all. That's useless. Forgive me for being blunt, but the way most people pray is just useless. It's like I heard a guy at one time that he says, all right, God, you want 10%. So he took the offer and put it into a basket and he threw it up in the air. And he says, God, if you want something, take it. Anything that falls back down to the ground is mine. That's not the way the Lord told us to give, but that's the way some people you know, would like to do it. That's the way some people's prayers are. They just throw it up to heaven, if it be your will. And if it happens, well, then it must have been God's will. If nothing happened, well, it must not have been God's will. No, we need to do what the Word says. We need to stand and believe. If you don't pursue healing, if you don't believe for healing, it's not going to happen accidentally. No, you have to believe. Matter of fact, right after this, these disciples, when they saw Jesus cast this demon out, they said, why couldn't we cast him out? Jesus didn't say, well, it's because it wasn't really my will. It was because I was trying to teach this boy and his father something. It was because I only sometimes heals and sometimes don't heal. No, he just told them real plainly in verse 20. He says, it's because of your unbelief. It's because of our unbelief today and because we have listened to the religious system and not to the Word of God that people don't believe in healing. But Matthew chapter 8, verse 17 where it says this was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, talking about Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, that he bore our infirmities and carried our diseases. And then 1 Peter 2, 24, by his stripes we were healed. Jesus went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil. 3 John chapter 1, verse 2 says, Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. And on and on and on I could go with scriptures about this. God wants you well. Today, I want to turn over to the book of Mark, chapter 6, and I'm going to share with you a teaching 
that I have entitled Hardness of Heart. And you know, this is one of the things that this was a major deal in my life. I remember exactly where I was when God started speaking this to me, when I saw breakthroughs. I remember that for years I nearly taught on this exclusively and I just saw people change. And this is something that I deal with every single day of my life and you do too. You may not realize it. You may not call it by this name, but it's talking about our sensitivity to the Lord. You know, I, I uh, saw this when I was riding on a plane one time and I was flying across the Great Lakes. I was headed into Chicago and we were up above the clouds. I was reading about Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then immediately after He fed the 5,000, He dismissed the people. He told His disciples to get into the ship and go to the other side. And they came into a storm and then Jesus came walking unto them on top of the water. And I remember that as I was reading this about how Jesus came walking on the water, I just looked out the window of that airplane and we were up above the clouds. There was a solid layer of clouds down below us. And I thought, you know, it wouldn't be any more miraculous if I just saw Jesus walking on those clouds than it was for those disciples to see Jesus walking on the water. You can't walk on clouds. You can't walk on water. And I just was picturing that in my imagination. I actually thought, what would it be like if I looked out there and saw Jesus just sitting on the wing of the airplane? And it wouldn't be any more miraculous. It's not a greater miracle. It's not any harder for Jesus to sit on the wing of an airplane than it was for Him to walk on water. And as I was reading this, I was just shocked. I was overwhelmed. And I came to Mark chapter 6, verse 51, and it says, And he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. And like I said, I was just really into this. It was impacting me. And when I read that, I thought, God, that's the way that anybody... If we were really thinking about it, all of us ought to be shocked, sore amazed in ourselves beyond measure and wondered at this great miracle of you walking on the water. And I was just feeling like, man, that's awesome. And then I read the next verse, verse 52. It says, for, the word for is a conjunction linking this to the previous verse. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. And all of a sudden I saw that the Lord wasn't commending them for being sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. But rather He was saying that that was an indication that they had a hardened heart the fact that they would be shocked to see Jesus walk on the water. And when I saw that, I mean, it was just like, I don't know, I was hit with a ton of bricks. It just, it impacted me. And I remember putting my Bible down and saying, God, I was sore amazed. I was thinking this was really a good way to be. And the Lord spoke to me and He says, if you are surprised by the supernatural, it's an indication of your heart is hardened. And man, that just rocked my world because I got born again when I was eight years old. I have been seeking God my entire life. I hadn't done it properly. I haven't, uh, you know, done everything perfectly. I'm not saying that, but I never, ever in a million years would have considered myself as having a hardened heart. When he said that, I had to just say, God, I need to learn then what a hardened heart is, what causes it and what the cure of it is. And this started me on about a two or three year study 
But God showed me, and I'm condensing things very quickly. I really encourage you to get this teaching on hardness of heart. But the Lord showed me that the word hardened, when you use it as referring to like your heart, it means to be cold, insensitive, unfeeling, or unyielding. And man, when the Lord showed me that, I said, well, there's times that I'm cold towards the Lord. I'm insensitive towards the Lord. I'm unfeeling. And there's certainly times that I don't yield to the Lord. I never thought of that as being a hardened heart, but that's what the dictionary defines hardened as. And the Lord gave me all kinds of instances. Like, for instance, Pharaoh, if you were to go back and look in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh would be brought to his knees and say, man, your God's the Lord. You go worship the Lord. But then he'd turn around and say, no, I'm not going to let you go. How could he do this? He had been brought to his knees. He had all of these plagues come on him. But every single time, you go back and read, I think it's like 14, 15, 16 times or something, it says his heart was hardened. And the moment he hardened his heart, all of his reason, his recollection of what had happened before, all of his... It's just like he had, was somehow or another blind. He couldn't think straight. And that's exactly what a hardened heart does. In Mark chapter 8 and verses 17 and 18, Jesus gave what some of the characteristics of a hardened heart are. He said, Why reason ye because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand? Have ye your heart yet hardened? See right here in these words and these questions, He's telling you what a hardened heart is. A hardened heart is not being able to perceive. If it seems like you're dull and you just can't perceive spiritual truth, you can hear me or your pastor or somebody else talk about things and it makes sense at that moment, but it just like you can't get it. It doesn't seem to be yours. It's because you got a hardened heart. It says, uh, perceive ye not yet, neither understand. If it seems like it's so hard for you to understand the things of God, when you read the Bible, you just can't understand it. It's because of a hardened heart. It's not because the Bible is wrong or hard. It's because you have a hardened heart. It goes on to say in the next verse, having eyes see ye not, and having ears hear ye not, and do ye not remember. Did you know that an inability to remember spiritual things is an indication or a characteristic of a hardened heart? And I can guarantee you there's people that God speaks something to you. You know that the Holy Spirit quickened it, but then you go to work and then you get busy and by the time you get home, you want to study and kind of go back and revisit that and you can't even remember. You know God said something to you. You were going to remember it, but you just lost it. You can't remember it. And some of you think, well, that's just the way I am. I just don't have a memory. There's nothing wrong with your mind. It's just your focus. You can remember who won the Super Bowl. You can remember all the sports trivia. You can remember what happened in the World Series in 1953, but you can't remember a scripture. It's because sports is more important to you than the scripture. It's because your focus is on that. But here's what the Lord taught me that causes our heart to be hardened or sensitive. Whatever you focus your attention on. I'm not talking about what individual pieces of information you may have. You may have some knowledge, but if you aren't focused on it, you will become hardened towards it. But whatever you focus on, you become sensitive to. Whatever you neglect, you become hardened to. It's just an automatic process. This is the way that God made our heart, that whatever your heart is just given to, focused on, in love with, 
you will be able to remember. You will be able to understand. You'll be able to perceive. But whatever you neglect, whether you still believe those things, whether you still embrace it or not, those things, you will begin to lose them. Your heart will become hardened. It's kind of like a callus. You know, hardness is not something that just happens all at once, but you just, you know, the Lord wants to speak to you. He's trying to say something to you, but you got something else you want to do and you put it off and just like a layer of skin, a callus or something. And over a period of time, if you keep working and those calluses just build up layer after layer after layer, it can get to where nothing can penetrate it. Your heart doesn't get hardened towards God all at once. It just happens little bit after little bit after little bit. It's a process. And once you understand what's happening and once you understand what the characteristics of a hardened heart are, then anytime you begin to start seeing some of these things, the moment you realize that, hey, I'm becoming a little bit less sensitive to God than I was, the cure for it is to just change your focus, to stay your heart upon God. Focus on God with everything that you've got. And as you do that, your heart will begin to start becoming sensitive again. You can hear the voice of God. You can remember what He's saying to you. And here's one of the things that I learned out of this series. And I have this teaching. This is one of the most important things that I believe the Lord ever spoke to me. And this is from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 15, talking about Abraham and Sarah. And it says, Truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. Now, God had told Abraham and Sarah to leave their homeland, to leave all of their kindred and come out, and He would give them this land that we now know as the land of Israel. And He promised that to them. And this is saying that if they had been mindful of the country they came out of, that's just talking about their mind, their heart, their focus. If they had been focused on what they left behind and what they gave up, then they would have been tempted to go back. So this is linking their temptation to what their mind was focused upon. So this is the great truth that God taught me, that you cannot be tempted with anything you don't think. So therefore, don't let your mind think on things that would be temptation and you'll never be tempted. I could be a great man of God if I was never tempted to do anything less. You could be a great man or woman of God if you were just never tempted with any unbelief. But the problem is most of us, see, don't understand this and we expose ourselves to things that we should never be exposed to. We allow our mind to go places that it should never go. And because of it, then later the temptation comes and we say, why is it so hard to serve God? Because you've been focused and thinking on things that you shouldn't have been thinking on. Man, that is a powerful truth. And all of this, see, is involved in hardness of heart. Your heart cannot be drawn towards and sensitive to something that it hasn't focused on. Therefore, don't focus on ungodliness. Don't watch ungodly movies. Don't use ungodliness for entertainment. That's just stupid. Forgive me for being blunt. But if you would never live that way, why would you read something? Why would you watch this? Why would you allow your mind to go there? You know, I firmly believe this, and I don't have enough time to explain it 100%, but in this series on hardness of heart, it'll go into all of this explanation. 
But I firmly believe that I am incapable of doing certain sins today. I believe I could go commit adultery. I believe I could go do those things if I was to harden my heart towards God. But since my heart isn't hardened towards God, since I love God, since I'm seeking God and praying and seeking Him with my whole heart, I am saying that today it is physically impossible for me to commit adultery. And I don't care what kind of situation you put me in. I could be like Joseph where, you know, the master's wife tried to force him and tried to coerce him into it. And he just could not do it. He left his coat and ran out of there. But he could not do it because his heart was right with God. There's some of you today who you say, man, every day it's a struggle for me to be faithful to my mate. It's a struggle for me to have integrity and not steal. It's a struggle for me to do this. And you'd say, I don't want to do it, but why is it such a struggle? Because your heart has been exposed to that. You have exposed yourself. You have gone places in your mind and in your thoughts that temptations follow what you think. You cannot be tempted with what you don't think and you have been thinking on the wrong things. Your heart is hardened towards God. You've neglected Him. You may not desire that. You may want to have a sensitive heart to God, but it doesn't come through just quality time. It's got to be quantity time. You've got to keep your heart stayed upon God. And some of you are thinking, you can't live that way. I've got to go make a living. I'm not like you. I'm not a preacher. I've got to work for a living. Well, first of all, you're totally wrong to think that somehow or another preachers just don't have anything to occupy them or to divert their attention. I, I have probably as much or more than most people. And, but I'm telling you that you can keep your heart stayed upon the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, it says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down of imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. That's what the Bible says you and I have. You can keep your mind stayed upon God. Probably not with the lifestyle that you've been living, not just being like a typical American where you come home and watch four or five hours worth of television every day. You may not be able to do it then, but you could keep your mind stayed upon God. You can meditate on God all day long. You can keep your mind stayed upon God and God will keep you in perfect peace. Isaiah 26 verse 3. You can do it. It's a matter that we haven't been doing it, but it can be done. Your heart, in the same way that it has been probably hardened towards God and it seems like the things of God are hard, you can reverse this process by just changing your focus. Whatever you focus your attention upon, your heart becomes sensitive to. Whatever you neglect, your heart becomes hardened to. The things that are dominating you right now, if they're ungodly, you can change that by just changing your focus to God and you can literally get to where you become hardened towards doubt and unbelief discouragement and all of these things. Today what I'm going to be teaching on is self-centeredness, the source of all grief. Let me turn to Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 10. And this is a scripture that has just revolutionized my life. I know I say this about nearly everything I teach, but everything I teach are things that God has used to change my life. 
I don't ever just go and try and find something to minister to other people. What I do is just seek the Lord and then whatever God has ministered to me and the things that changed my life, those are the things that I share. So even though I say this about everything, it really is true that this is one of the most important things that God has ever shown me. And in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10, it says, Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. You know, before I get right into that scripture, let me turn over to uh, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 14. It says, The beginning of strife is as when one letteth out water. Therefore, leave off contention before it be meddled with. So the contention here is described as the beginning of strife. So put that back in Proverbs 13.10. Only by pride cometh contention. You could say the only way that strife comes or the beginning of strife is through pride. Now that is a huge statement right there. And again, most people don't believe that that's the only way that strife or contention comes is through pride. They think, no, it's what this person did. Some people say it's my personality. It's just my personality type. I'm, you know, a, a type A personality or whatever. Some people have just embraced strife and contention and think it's because of all of these external things. But the Bible says only by pride comes contention. You know, I ministered one time in Pueblo, Colorado, and I was ministering on this exact subject, self-centeredness, the source of all grief. And I was saying some of these things, and a man walked up to me. He's a little Mexican guy. And he walked up to me, and I never will forget him saying, Look, I admit that I have a temper. I get angry. He says, I am violent. I've got all of these problems. He says, I admit it. But he says, pride isn't one of them. He says, if anything, I've got such low self-esteem. He says, I feel terrible about myself. And he says, you're saying only by pride comes contention. And he says, that just isn't true. And what I had to do is to redefine pride for him because we have a mistaken opinion thinking that pride is just where you exalt yourself. Arrogance, thinking you're better than everybody else. Now that is pride, but it's only one manifestation of pride. It's like having a stick. You know, if you have a stick, it's got two ends to it and they're opposite. But it's the same stick. One end of that pride is where you think you're better than everybody else. But did you know that low self-esteem is also pride? Thinking you're inferior to everybody else is also pride. And some of you are thinking, well, no, that's not. Pride is just this arrogance. Pride in its simplest terms is self-centeredness. And it doesn't matter if self thinks you're better than everybody else or self thinks you're worse than everybody else. You are just focused on yourself. You are consumed with yourself. That is pride. A person who is uh, timid and shy is a very prideful, self-centered person. I really believe that because I have been very timid. I was an introvert before the Lord touched my life. And I can tell you what I was thinking. When people would come up and introduce themselves and I would be confronted with someone brand new, immediately I had fear about, oh, am I going to uh, make a fool of myself? Am I going to say something wrong? Am I going to remember their name? And I would just be thinking about myself. And I was so afraid that I would say or do something wrong that it just 
uh, you know, made me tongue-tied. I didn't have self-confidence. I was self, I was critical of myself. I was embarrassed. And it just, every time a person would come up, I would think about myself, oh no, am I going to make a mistake? Am I going to say something stupid? And it was self-centeredness that made me that way. And the antidote to it is that when I got turned on to the Lord, I fell so much in love with the Lord. And once God's love flowed to me, and then threw me to other people. I just got to a place to where I lost my feelings about myself. And, you know, I had a guy come up one time after I administered, and he walked up and he says, you know, you've got some good things to share. And if you were more concerned with the people you're ministering to than you are yourself, you could be a blessing. And you know what? That was just like a dagger in my heart. Man, it hurt, but it was true. And when I saw that, that what was hindering me from speaking was being afraid of saying or doing something wrong. Let me use this verse over in Numbers chapter 12. It says in verse 1, And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Ethiopians were black. And it was an interracial marriage and Miriam and Aaron spake against him because of that. And in verse 2, they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. And then the next verse, this is amazing. It says in parentheses, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. You know, that's quite a statement. There was, who knows, 10, 20, 30, 50 million people on the earth, I don't know, and it says that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. That's a huge statement. And you know what makes this even greater is that Moses is the one that wrote that. Now see, this means that you have to totally redefine meekness and humility because according to most people's standard, if you were truly humble, you'd never know it. If you're truly humble, you just put yourself down. You think bad about yourself and all of this, and you, never, you wouldn't allow yourself to think anything positive at all. But Moses was so humble, so meek, that when God inspired him to write that you are the meekest man on the face of the earth, he went ahead and did it. See, most people, the way they look at humility, they would never do that. I heard a story one time about a church that took a vote to see who the most humble person in the whole church was. And everybody agreed. It was dear old brother so-and-so. This man was just so humble. So on Sunday morning, they called him up and they had this big button, big red button with the word humble written on it. And they presented him with the humble button. And because he accepted it, they took it away. Because, you know, if you're truly humble, he wouldn't have accepted that. He had said, oh, no, I'm not worthy. No, true humility is just saying about yourself what God says. And if God says you're the most humble person on the face of the earth, would you be humble enough to admit it? Or would you be thinking, what's everybody going to think about me? Everybody's going to think I'm promoting myself, that I'm proud and arrogant, and I couldn't do that. If that would be your response, then you aren't humble. True humility is not going above what God says about you, nor is it going below what God says about you. But basically religion says you can knock yourself down. You get up and say, well, I can't sing very well, but y'all just pray for me. 
And then you get up and you've had five years of operatic training and you got this awesome booming voice and yet you just knock yourself down. And people have been taught that that's humility. You, uh, you, excuse me, I, I combined two words. That's humility. I was thinking, no, it's not humility. It's stupidity. So that's humidity, I guess is what I said. But anyway, see, that's just stupid when you sit there and say these things that you don't mean and you're trying to get a backhanded compliment. You say, just pray for me. I don't have a very good voice, but then you've got this beautiful voice. And you know what? They didn't mean it. It's a religious con because you can go up to them during the week in the supermarket and see this person who said, well, just pray for me. I don't have a very good voice, but the Lord said, make a joyful noise. Go up to them in the supermarket during the week and said, you know what? You were right. You really do have a sorry voice. It was terrible. And see if they just say, well, that's what I told you. That's, you know, they didn't believe it. We've been taught that you can sit here and knock yourself down all you want to. You can debase yourself, hate yourself, criticize yourself, but you just compliment yourself in the slightest way, and that's pride. I'm telling you that that stick of pride has two ends. One is arrogance where you exalt yourself and promote yourself more than you should. But to debase yourself and criticize yourself and be focused on your faults and your failures more than you should is also pride. It's just self-centeredness. And it's only by pride that contention comes. The only thing that makes you angry is your self-focus your self-love, your self, your absorption with self, being totally consumed with yourself. The Bible teaches that we are supposed to die to ourself. And if you were to die to yourself, if you were truly a corpse, you could put a corpse in front of me and I could insult, insult the corpse. I could, uh, you know, hit the corpse, kick the corpse, neglect the corpse. But if it's a corpse, it's not going to respond. The reason that we respond when things happen to us is because we haven't died to ourselves, because we are self-centered. So going all the way back to the first of this program when this man said, look, I've got a lot of problems, but pride isn't one of them, and yet I am very angry. Did you know he may not have defined pride the proper way, but if you define it the way I'm talking about, self-centered, he was very prideful. And that's what made him angry. You can't be angry without just being self-centered, thinking about yourself. And I know some of you think, well, that's not true. That's exactly what this verse is saying. You know, my brother has a temper or had a temper when he was young. And I mean, he used to whoop up on me. He was four and a half years older than me and he would just beat me sometimes. And uh, anyway... I remember him one time hitting me and gashing my head open. My grandmother had to take a towel and it took multiple towels to soak up the thing. Probably should have gotten stitches. But anyway, he just got angry and he did this. And yet my brother, after he would cool down, after his temper was over, and after he would see, you know, what he had done to me or to somebody else, there's many times that he'd come and he'd say, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't realize I was hurting you. And by saying that, you know what he was doing? He was saying that when he was angry, he wasn't thinking about anybody else but himself. If you have a temper, you are just thinking about yourself. You aren't thinking about other people. You aren't thinking about the collateral damage. You are just thinking about, look what they did to me. And conversely, 
You can't be angry if you aren't self-centered. You know, I could give you some examples. I don't mean to portray that I've, I'm perfect in any of these areas. I'm not. But I can tell you that I've had people come out and accuse me of stealing money, lying, committing adultery, being a drug addict, being a drunk. I've had people accuse me of all of those things and say things. And when I heard it, I was pastoring the church. I went and talked to them and confronted them saying, you know this isn't true. And I dealt with them. And they got angry and yelled at me. And yet, at that time, again, I'm not perfect in this, but at that time, I was so focused on God and on what He was telling me to do, and I was thinking more about this person than I was about myself, that I honestly just let it go. It didn't even bother me. And the next week, I was driving by this person's business. I was in the habit of stopping every time I drove by their business and talking to them. And Jamie was with me, and I said, do you want to go in and see them? And she said, no way, I'm staying in the car. I went in by myself, and this person just wasn't friendly to me. It wasn't friendly the way it normally was. And I tried to talk to them, but it wasn't working, so I left. When I got back out to the car, I told Jamie, I said, something's wrong. They didn't treat me friendly the way they normally do. And Jamie just looked at me, and finally she said, are you kidding? Do you not remember what he has said about you? And she had to remind me about him yelling at me and him saying that I was a drunk and I was a doper and I'd commit adultery and I'd stolen money. I had forgotten all of it. You know why? Because I wasn't self-centered. I knew that it wasn't true. And I just was thinking about them, about ministering to them. And I honestly had forgotten it. I know many of you are thinking, boy, you are weird, but you know the answer to that. I think you're weird. I th with the way that we get so self-centered, when you are selfish, when you are just focused on yourself and thinking only about yourself, it's like you got a chip on your shoulder, and I guarantee you somebody's going to knock it off, something is going to happen, and you are easily offended. But when you love God and other people more than you love yourself, you won't even notice you won't even, uh, it won't bother you because you aren't self-centered. If you are dead to yourself, you won't react and be angry and bitter. It is not just your personality. Some people, I was born this way. Well, then you could be delivered of that demon, but I can guarantee you it is not God's will and it is not just your nature for you to be angry. It's your selfishness and the fact that you analyze everything totally from a selfish standpoint that makes you angry. If you loved other people more than you loved yourself, instead of you being angry when they do something, your first response would be, you know, what is wrong with them? How can I help them? And you wouldn't take it so personal, you wouldn't respond. I'm telling you, you can get to that point. It's only by pride that contention comes. We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. It's the faithful support of people like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. We maintain a website at awmi.net. Our helpline number is 719-635-1111, or you can write us at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80934. 
Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.